It's not that nobody wants to work. It's that not everyone wants to work the way that we have defined work for, you know, our, our entire lives up to this point. Welcome to the Balancing Act Podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. Today we've got Jared Linson, a future of work thought leader and freelance journalist for publications like Fast Company and Toronto's Globe and Mail, along with a lot of other major publications. And Jared's joining us today. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thanks so much, Andy. Yeah, so for our listeners, uh, Jared and I know each other uh, really quite well because uh, he was uh, really intimately involved in the Balancing Act uh, project, and uh, we're working together again on our uh, on our next book, uh, uh, which uh, title is yet to be determined, but uh, we're we're knee deep in that project. So thank you, Jared, for all your hard work on that. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for making my job easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, working with me, I'm sure, is... Uh, oh, it's uh, been a pleasure. Not not the cakewalk that uh, <laughs> everybody thinks it is. <laughs> so, today, we're going to continue our series on that lightning rod question, nobody wants to work anymore. And we're going to tap into Jared's experience as both a journalist and a public speaker on the future of work to explore the nuance that lies behind this potentially polarizing black and white assessment of today's job market or the market for talent. But as usual, before we get started, Jared, tell our listeners your story. Oh boy. Um, it's, uh, I'm assuming you mean professionally speaking and uh, mostly of how I ended up where I am today because I have a lot of stories to tell, but I'll try and keep it concise. Sure. Um, you know, I got into freelancing the way most people get into self-employment, which is uh, a negative uh, employment experience, specifically a bad boss um, that uh, encouraged me to uh, not want to work for someone else ever again. Um, but I, I've been interested in journalism um, basically since uh, high school. I got really into media studies as a, as a broad category, and I pursued that in, in university um, and then started volunteering for the school newspaper and just fell in love with the world of journalism. Um, it was really interesting for me to see the things that I was doing at this little back room in the campus uh, community center, you know, windowless office with 20 other people crammed in. And, and the things that we were scribbling down was actually having a real world impact on the campus and on that little, you know, contained environment that we were in. And, and I wanted to keep doing that with my life to find different ways that I could affect positive change, um, you know, just by, by communicating what was happening around me. Um, so afterwards, I pursued a master's degree in journalism um, I took the first job I could find, which, as alluded to earlier, was not a great experience. Um, it wasn't really the traditional journalism work that I was hoping to do. It was more on the branded, sponsored side of things. Um, and when I was looking to make that transition, I was meeting with editors and other freelancers. And specifically, I met with one editor from The Globe and Mail, which you mentioned earlier as well. Um, and I told them, you know, I was 23 at the time. I said I wanted to work remotely. I wanted to be a freelancer and, and I'm a millennial. And he said, those are all the, the buzzwords that our careers department is trying to figure out right now. Um, why don't you try, you know, some, some work for them? And I, it, it was such a natural fit. I'd never considered writing about work. I never, you know, had an interest in, in human resources and management before, but 
Um, as I got into that world, it just sort of felt natural because it felt like the direction that the world was moving just made a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, and, and growing up watching every cartoon, uh, had that cliche of the dad who hated their job, whether it was the Simpsons or the Jetsons or whatever it was, the dad character just hated their boss and hated their job. And I thought like, that's not the world that I want to exist in in the future. And, and how do people accept this? And it turns out that a lot of people weren't accepting it at the time and were looking for change. And it was really interesting to be on the forefront of, of writing about those changes as they were happening. And of course, you know, in the last two years, it's gone from a very niche topic to being something that is uh, front of mind for, for just about everyone, which has also been an extremely interesting transition. And as you alluded to along the way, you know, I've been working closely with the Globe and Mail and Fast Company, but as a freelancer, um, I've pursued uh, opportunities with, with publications uh, across the journalistic spectrum from the New York Times to Rolling Stone to The Guardian. Um, so my, my career uh, has taken me to a lot of interesting places, um, some of which, you know, related to this idea of the future of work and the way in which the world of work is changing, and some of which completely unrelated to that, but still interesting and fun. And part of why I love my job is the variety that it offers. Uh, that's wonderful. A um, uh, little bit off script, but uh, who's the coolest person you've uh, met? Because you, uh, you, you've you, you know, you've been out, you've, you've, uh, you've been moving, you've been shaken as a freelance uh, journalist. What's like the, wow, that, that was a really awesome individual. Can, can, can you clue us in on any of those? So I have, I have quite a few, but I'm going to tailor the answer to the uh, question asker. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I don't know, I think we've discussed this before and you weren't a big uh, Grateful Dead fan, but I know you're a big fan of music from that era. But I had a very interesting conversation with Bob Weir um, of the Grateful Dead and it was in person and the whole time he was just noodling on his acoustic guitar while we were having a chat about literally life and death, um, talking about, you know, music and talking about just such a broad, we talked about business. We had a great like half hour long intimate conversation, just me and him in the green room before a performance at a charity event. And the whole time he's just giving me this private concert, you know, not even thinking his fingers are just moving while he's talking. And that was a, a pretty incredible experience. Oh wow! So our our dead fans out there, <laughs> our dead heads will, uh, will will really really connect really connect with that. So uh, awesome! So let's dive right in. Um, you've already told us uh, about your route to freelance. I might might want to hear a little bit more about the bad boss that uh, drove <laughs> you to freelance uh, at, at some point. But you know, let's uh, let's dive right right into the topic at hand. When you hear someone casually toss out the phrase, nobody wants to work anymore, what goes through your mind? Did everyone just get lazy over the pandemic and abandon their work ethic, as the phrase implies? Um, no, <laughs> to start there. <laughs> um, a lot of things go through my head when, when I hear that statement. Um, so many of them, uh, you know, feel very wrong, but but understandable assumptions. So the first thing I would say is that I've been hearing that for a very long time as a millennial in particular, because from the very beginning, and, and I mean, before I entered the workforce, I was being told by 
you know, everything I was reading by adults in my life, that my generation just didn't have any work ethic, that we were entitled, that everything was supposed to be handed to us on a silver platter, that we expected to come in as an intern and six weeks later be the CEO. Um, you know, we, we experienced that in, in a really significant way that, you know, that was sort of my first interaction with that statement. It wasn't nobody wants to work because of this pandemic. It was your generation doesn't have a work ethic. And I've been brushing up against that for a very long time. I've, I've written um, articles about it and I've looked into it. It turns out that every single generation, and it's like I can, I can go back thousands of years, Plato and Aristotle complained that the younger generations had no work ethic. Nice. Um, this goes back pretty much to the beginning of human history. Um, everyone reaches an age and believes that the folks who are coming up behind them are lazy and entitled and, you know, are too passionate and not, you know, act with their heart and not with their brains and don't have the sort of, uh, you know, work ethic that they did at that age, forgetting that, you know, um, every generation has faith. You can, you can read about Gen Xers being described in the same terms. You can certainly, certainly read about baby boomers during the hippie era uh, you know, being talked about in the same way. Um, so that to me, it, 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 the first thought I have is that, um, yeah, that generational critique that comes up and I'm sure in 20 years from now, I'll be talking about the younger folks is, you know, they didn't have it as <laughs> they didn't work as hard as I did at that age. Um, because it's, it's almost like our, our natural instinct. The other big thing though, that I think is a bit more specific to this moment in this post pandemic period, um, is the fact that people when, when people make that statement, they're failing to acknowledge that work as, as an institution, as, you know, a huge part of our everyday lives, didn't, wasn't a natural fit for, for a pretty large proportion of the workforce for, for a variety of reasons, a wide variety of reasons. But the, the structures that we had always assumed to be just the way things are and had to be we're not a natural fit for most people. And so when, when everyone got an opportunity to experience a different structure and different norms and a different way of, of doing things, you know, pushing, leaning into that was seen as a, a push away from work as we knew it and, and pushing away from work as we knew it was perceived as nobody wants to work. It's not that nobody wants to work. It's that not everyone wants to work the way that we have defined work for, you know, our, our entire lives up to this point. Yeah. I think that's a great segue because, you know, in, in episode 38, a couple of episodes ago, Dan Trafford and I talked about, we did the setup for nobody wants to work anymore. And I certainly didn't pull any punches regarding my position that the phrase is unhelpful at best and a derogatory slur at worst to describe a very complicated set of issues. Uh, you know, we, we talked about the great resignation uh, in, in that episode and its link to this phrase. From your perspective, what are some of the key drivers beyond what you've already described to the great resignation and these shifting attitudes about our relationship with work? Yeah, there's, there's so much uh, to say there. Um, I, I, I would say the first thing I would want to bring up is the fact that, um, you know, as, as I mentioned, I've been working remotely. I believe this is going into my ninth or tenth year now. Um, so this, this is the standard for me. This is the norm. But for the eight years or seven and a half years that I was doing it before the pandemic, 
I was under the impression, um, and so was everyone else, that that I was just a, a unique personality, that I was different from the average person, that I, for whatever reason, thrived in a remote environment in a way that the average person wouldn't, you know? And in my head, I thought it was amazing. How could anybody choose to work in an office when you could work from home and not have to commute and not have to be in front of people? I was more productive. All the things that people have now known to be their experience. But um, for a long time, I was the outlier. But as soon as everyone else got a taste for what I had been experiencing for a long time and how great it was and all the benefits that are out there for, for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people that were like me um, and, and really enjoyed that opportunity to experience a different workplace structure, it just fit naturally in a way that the traditional workplace structure didn't. And now we're reaching a point where organizations are saying, sorry, um, that was a fun experiment, but we're going back to the way things were because we're used to operating that way. We know how to construct systems um, and you know how to operate under that structure. So we're just going back to the familiar. Um, a lot of people are saying, no, uh, you know, I know that there's a better way. I know from experience that this works better for me, for my personal life, for my professional life. So I'm not, I'm not going back. And if you're not going to let me back, uh, there's a lot of other competitors of yours that would welcome me, uh, you know, in a remote setting. So I, I think that that is a huge driver. Um, and I, I have to also give some credit here to Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft just put out a, a huge study. I, I look at tons of these studies as part of my work, but Microsoft's um, in the last two years in particular, as they've dug into this future of work, uh, changing workplace attitudes sort of topic. They said, bottom line out of all this research is the people who left the office in 2020 are not the people, they're not the same as the people who are coming back today. In that they might have the same name, they might look the same, maybe a little bit grayer, but they are not the same people because of what they've been through that they were before. And I think the friction that we're describing is an assumption by employers that they are the same people, they can be treated the same way, they have the same needs and desires um, and demands, and not really paying attention to the fact that we've all gone through this really uh, you know, difficult emotional experience, some would say bordering you know, traumatic, um, and we're not the same people that we are, and, and we have different needs. And so the companies that are ignoring that change are the ones who are seeing mass resignations. And, and also, it's important to note that, um, you know, had we entered this period of offices reopening at a point where the economy and specifically the job market looked differently, we might not be seeing such a, a big effect. Um, but the great resignation has got this snowball effect where you know, there are a lot of vacancies right now because of people not finding that alignment. And because there's so many vacancies, it's so easy to switch jobs to, to find something that aligns with the structure that you would prefer, um, whether that's in-person, remote, or, or hybrid. Um, so it, it kind of snowballs into this effect where because the job market is so hot, the prospect of leaving isn't nearly as scary or as intimidating as it typically is. And that's also another huge driver. If we had, if we'd come out of this uh, you know, lockdown period back into the office um, without that really strong employment market, employees would probably suck it up and just be happy to be employed. But right now, they, they don't have to settle for whatever they can get. 
um, you know, with their current employer, they, they have a world of opportunities. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Call, call everybody back into the office and go back to the way things were at your own peril. A hundred percent. Yeah. So our last series of episodes uh, that aired this spring, uh, focused on the reskilling revolution, um, a billion people globally need to be reskilled over the next 10 years. As a future of work thought leader, is the quote unquote, nobody wants to work anymore theme related to the prediction that a billion people will need to be reskilled over the next 10 years? Um, yes and no. I think the nobody wants to work anymore statement is, uh, again, a, a missing a lot of the nuance um, that's that's out there. And where I approach this, and you might even have a, a better perspective on this, is that I think a lot of this comes back to education um, and the way in which education has been built in a very specific way and has existed in a very specific way for a very long time that no longer suits the, the needs of the realities of the economy as it exists today. Um, so, you know, we used to operate in an environment where uh, you know, you got your base level education in, in elementary and high school, and then you sort of specialized in something in post-secondary, and that three to four years of education was enough to carry you through the next 50 years of your life. Um, and so that one credential was hugely important and was really a, a precursor, it was a prerequisite to a successful career in a specific field. Um, that world is long gone. And, and it was before the pandemic, but it's especially uh, acute now. And as roles are changing more rapidly because technology is changing more rapidly and forcing us to change with it, and the most innovative companies are ultimately going to succeed. And so if we need to keep up with the pace of innovation, um, waiting for a three or four year degree is no longer practical. And so um, I'm very interested in the topic of micro-credentialing. And I've actually spoken with post-secondary institutions that are really focused on this because they see it as the future of education. That There will be a place for the three or four-year degree um, in the future, but just as there is you know, a place for in-office work and remote work, there is a place for the big degree that can give you a you know very important foundation um, versus uh, a micro credential, which might be better suited for for different roles. I, I think what we're coming to realize in a lot of different domains, and and education being one of them, is that you know this one size fits all approach that we've long assumed to be the best and only way is not. And so um, you know, going back to the statement, nobody wants to work anymore. I think that is sort of ignoring the fact that higher education has long been, um, you know, by design, uh, exclusionary and, and, you know, only includes a pretty narrow slice of the population. And there's a lot of people out there who would really want to work in, you know, jobs that currently require a four-year degree for no other reason than tradition and history. You know, there's nothing about the job that really requires you to have a four-year degree. We just you know, sort of want people who have proven that they can make it that way through, you know, education, but it, the, the skills aren't directly transferable necessarily. But the fact that it's still a prerequisite and the fact that post-secondary education isn't open to everybody leads a lot of people to look around and say, you know, nobody wants to work. 
But is it because they don't want to work or they can't work because they can't get the credential that is a prerequisite for basically every job in the economy? So that's also where I think micro-credentialing can really help uh, bridge that gap. Yeah, we'll we'll have a subsequent conversation on uh, micro credentials and uh, stackables and ripping apart the degree. Uh, and I, I do want to have that conversation late uh, at a, in a in a future show to t- to tap into your future of work experience. Uh, but right now, let's just hone in. Let's leverage your future of work experience to ask the question: What are the in your opinion, the top two or three skills that you believe that talent across generations uh, need to acquire and hone to be uh, ready for the the next step in our talent and labor markets? So the number one is is very obvious because in you know studies and on job postings, it is consistently the first requirement that comes up, or the most frequently cited. Uh, requirement for a majority of jobs on platforms like LinkedIn and elsewhere where they actually share this data, and that's communication. And communication is a pretty broad term that that encompasses a lot of different forms of communication, uh, you know, written communication, asynchronous communication. There's there's a lot to the con- communication uh, under the communication umbrella. But um, if you look at the trend line of how frequently communication is cited as a requirement for a job, uh, it's it's a hockey stick. It's gone from being very specific to, you know, roles that had the word communication in it, corporate communications, external communications, you know, media communications, and maybe sales. Those are the only jobs that really required strong communication skills 20 years ago. Now, there isn't really a lot of jobs left that don't expect a certain base level of communication skills. And if you've been the kind of person that um, you know, wants to sort of get your work done in a back room and, you know, not really have that face-to-face interaction or isn't really comfortable with it or, um, you know, just hasn't really put an emphasis on communication skills in the past. Unfortunately, now is the time where you can't really get away from it. You know, almost every job now, if you think about accountants and, and people in professional services, even doctors, um, folks that were in roles that were considered to be very technical and not really uh, emphasize the communication skills are, are making a huge shift right now. Um, and, and one last point I'll say on this is that there are studies that show that um, medical errors are often, I think 70% of medical errors can be traced back to a failure of communication. Yep. And so the medical industry in, in you know, the medical education world has taken that very seriously. And now they're vetting candidates, you know, as part of the med school application process to ensure that they have a base level of communication skills. So there really isn't an industry, a role, a generation that isn't touched by this growing emphasis on communication. Um, so that would be so number one. Yeah, so let let's let's pause on number one, and we might not get to two and three because <laughs> because your number one is so incredibly important. And uh, I had the next question teed up uh, uh, as advice for uh, individuals rethinking their relationship with work, but I but I want to twist that just a little bit, and uh, because you're closer to the generation that grew up with emoticons and communication primarily over text messaging and uh, and other messaging services so we we have this extreme need for uh, heightened communication skills 
uh, yet uh, individuals who are entering the workforce today for the first time uh, grew up communicating in a very different way than you know the the written word and frankly even uh, the sp- the spoken word. What advice do you have for the twenty year old who's entering the workforce and has and and probably has a a world view that well i can I can just communicate with everybody via emoticons because well, my generation all gets it, and I, I don't care what uh, the Andy Temp, the fifty-eight-year-old Andy Tempties of the world <laughs> think think about it. What what's your, what's your advice uh, there? Well, that that goes back to what I was saying at the very top with this uh, generational divide. The the <laughs> older generations will always have a problem with the you know standard operating procedures of the the next generation in line. That's just you, you know that's that's a feature of being human. I think uh, it goes far back into our human history. But, um, I, you know, I, I have seen that concern play out before. I've seen a lot of um, Gen Z, you know, folks being concerned that they don't have the communication skills necessary. I think what's going to end up happening, uh, before I get to the advice very quickly, what ends up happening in a lot of these circumstances is that both sides kind of meet halfway. Um, and that's happened throughout history where you have sort of this existing layer of, of management and of, you know, certain practices that have been that way for a long time, rubbing up against a generation that's demanding a different way of doing things, the end result usually ends up somewhere in between where the Andy Tempties of the world might use a little bit more emojis, but the <laughs> 20-year-old intern is also going to be expected to be able to craft a very, uh, you know, strong and um, well-communicated, you know, letter or, or email to you know, a client when they need to. Um, so we're probably going to end up finding our way somewhere in between. I, and, and I'm already seeing it in, in Slack channels. There's a lot more GIFs and emojis and people are getting more comfortable in their internal communications, but externally, it's still very professional. So I would say don't stress too much um, if you're a 20 something because the world is going to meet you halfway in, in this. But at the same time, it's important that you do have at least a base level of professional communication skills out there. And a lot of it ends up um, coming through experience. So, you know, I would say it's important to work on those skills. Communication is not going to be any less important throughout the course of your career, but it will get easier as you get used to it over time. Um, And eventually this, this current generation um, is going to meet you halfway, but you, you also have to meet them halfway and be prepared to to provide that sort of professional level of communication when it is necessary. Yeah, cool. So in uh, 30 seconds, what were skills two and three? <laughs> I was going to say a base level of uh, comfort with technology. Yep. You, you need that. There's no way around that. There's There's really... I don't even know if I need to get into any detail about that. And the last one, which I'm sure you've had plenty of conversations about, is uh, empathy, which um, there, we could talk for hours about that. But I think if I just put the word out there, a lot of people will understand why I'm saying it. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to finish uh, with, uh, with 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 a, a fairly difficult question. Uh, let's make the assumption that you could have an open-minded discussion with a manager or leader who has adopted this frame, this mental set of nobody wants to work anymore. What advice would you give to help that individual see the nuance in our current market for talent? 
Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it would start with pointing out the ways in which the lived experience of the current generation differs from their own, because I think that is a, a degree of understanding that um, gets sort of passed up and it, it does go back to or passed over and it goes back to, to that word empathy. Um, you know, if you aren't putting yourselves in the shoes of uh, the folks that you're criticizing, the, the criticism isn't very valid. You, you need to try at least to see um, their perspective, what they've been through, what they've grown up with, um, you know, the world in which they're operating in and how it differs from, from your lived experience. Um, and, and there's a lot of implications there as well for, you know, folks that have existed in a world where they're in the majority population versus those who are from more, uh, you know, underrepresented communities and how their experiences might differ. So I think that's an important note. Um, I would also say that the more that they, you know, stand firm in this perspective that nobody wants to work anymore, the harder it's going to be for them to attract and retain uh, the talent that they will need in order to succeed. They are only making the situation worse for themselves. Um, you know, not everyone has to have it really, really hard to be valid in their struggles. Um, you know, we've all been through a really tough time the last few years. It's it's important to acknowledge that you you don't really know what people have gone through and are going through. And uh, yeah, a little bit of empathy would go a long way. Um, the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, this generation and uh, the workforce in general, especially after the last two years, is, is starting to embrace a different perspective on mental health and on things like therapy and even yoga. And, uh, you know, there's some interesting research out there on, on hallucinogenics as well. Um, maybe a trip to the other side of the world. I think anything that can help expand your capacity for empathy um, to sort of dig into where that assumption that nobody wants to work anymore is coming from and trying to understand what the experiences are of other people. It's not an easy task. It doesn't come about naturally. And the reason why we hear this phrase so commonly is because it is a lot of work and not everyone is willing to do that kind of work. It's a lot easier to just, you know, say nobody wants to work and, and not bother to see it from their perspective. So I would say um, I would really encourage them to do the work to understand where people are coming from. I wouldn't expect that they would because it is a lot of work, but I would hope that they'd consider it. Yeah. Well, Jared, we're at time. Uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot from this conversation. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank our listeners for being here. Uh, this is the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. You can find everything at andrewtempty.com or on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, please like, subscribe, uh, please rate the podcast. That helps out uh, a, a great deal. Uh, but again, thank you for your time and thank you, Jared, for being here. Thanks for having me, Andy.